Welcome uh, to the Durst Show. Um, obviously, today I'm going to want to talk about uh, last night's State of the Union message and also today's developments in Ukraine. Um, first of all, uh, the uh, president last night actually fulfilled a constitutional duty, which he is required to do. People think about the State of the Union message just as a speech the president gives. No, the Constitution, Article 2, Section 3, says uh, the president shall from, shall, from time to time, it doesn't give a date, um, give to the Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend for consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. So President Biden uh, did that. And I know many of you watching are Republicans and you don't like President uh, Biden as a Democrat. But I have to tell you, I was pleasantly surprised um, at the speech. Uh, look, Joe Biden is no uh, great orator. Um, he's not Winston Churchill. He's not uh, uh, Ronald Reagan. Um, he is, you know, a regular guy who was in the Senate for a long time and uh, who I've known for, I think, about 42 years or so. I like him. He's a nice guy. He's a regular fella. Uh, he's a kind man. Uh, when he talked about his son yesterday, it was genuine. And the two members of Congress who booed him were despicable, despicable to boo a president or hassle a president or, or heckle a president when he's talking about his own son being a victim, uh, indirectly to be sure, of, uh, of the wages of war. Uh, so I, I generally thought fairly well of the speech. It wasn't delivered brilliantly. It, uh, um, it uh, to my mind, uh, had too much politics in it. But after all, the Constitution, again, says he, he's supposed to do two things. He's supposed to give a speech on the State of the Union. He, he did that, and he said the State of the Union is strong because Americans are strong. But it also, he's supposed to recommend for their consideration measures he shall judge necessary and expedient. So it's part of his duty to do what he did, and that is recommend measures, some of which were quite divisive because we're a divided country. We're divided over taxation. We're divided over gun control. We're divided over gay rights, not as much as we used to be, and we're divided over abortion rights, and we're uh, divided over the pandemic and about vaccinations, and I think he tried as best he could to focus on the areas of agreement, but in the end, the first part of the speech, which I thought was very good, about, about Ukraine and about the heroic people of Ukraine, brought people together. It was conciliatory. He tried to get all Americans to support what the rest of the world seems to be uh, supporting today. We'll talk about this in a minute. There was a General Assembly vote at the United Nations where the vast, vast, vast majority of states uh, voted to condemn uh, Ukraine. I'm sorry, <laughs> to condemn Russia and praise Ukraine. Um, there were abstentions and there were some who voted in support of, of, of Russia. We'll talk about that in a minute. But <clears throat> in general, the world is united on this issue. Not united necessarily on, on what to do, 
Obviously, Zelensky would like us to create a no-fly zone. You don't just create it. You have to enforce it, which would mean American jets uh, coming up against um, Russian jets. And inevitably, there would be some shootdowns, and it could really escalate the war considerably. There's division about that. Um, some American media have called for a deeper involvement. Uh, there's also division about another point that he made in the speech yesterday, and I've mentioned this in the past. He said that the United States is obliged by treaty, NATO, to respond militarily in the event one inch of NATO land is invaded. In other words, he basically committed himself to sending American troops into harm's way if the Russians go into Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania. He's not going to have my support on that. He's not going to have the support of many Americans. Uh, I, I don't think Americans... Uh, 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 want to see their, their daughters and sons uh, put in harm's way for three countries that were more Nazi than the Nazis in many ways and um, have horrible, horrible records on their own historically and were never great allies of the United States. Sure, we let them into NATO, probably a big mistake, um, and we are obliged by treaty, but... Um, Treaties don't determine actions uh, always. So, you know, the president said what he said, and he probably said it to send a message to, to Putin. And I think the message was the right one, but countries have to keep their promises and comply with their threats. Obama failed to do that when um, Syria used um, chemical warfare against its own um, citizens. Obama had said, Previously, that was a red line, and then he just ignored the red line and uh, said no. Um, he didn't do a thing, and Syria got worse and killed many more of its own civilians. Look, I think President Obama was the worst foreign policy president in modern history. I voted for him. I voted for him twice. I thought he was a good domestic policy president. I also liked him. I knew him as a student. I knew him as somebody who used to hang out in my office suite with Professor Ogletree, who was my, my close friend and who shared an office suite with me, and, 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 and young Barack Obama, Barry he was called then, uh, used to come in and, and spend a lot of time with, with Ogletree, and I spent time with him. So I've known him for a long time. I, I, I liked him. I don't like him anymore. Um, I think he broke promises. I think he, uh, he called me to the Oval Office to try to get my support for the 2000 and um, 12 election, and he made me a promise. He said he had Israel's back, and he would never abandon Israel, and he would never allow Iran to develop nuclear weapons. And when he said he had Israel's back, I didn't realize that he meant to, to put a target uh, for nuclear weapons on the back of Israel. And so he broke his promise to me, and I ended my relationship uh, with him. Um, but uh, I don't want to get into the blame game of who's the blame. If Obama hadn't done what he did in Syria, maybe... Uh, Putin wouldn't have done what he did if, if Trump were president. Maybe Putin wouldn't have dared to do what he did. I don't want to get into that because I just don't know the answers. I don't know what's in Putin's mind. Putin might have done exactly the same thing regardless of anything that happened, or, or he might have been affected <clears throat> by previous uh, American actions and, and American policies. I just don't know. I do know that the first third of the speech, the part that dealt with... Um, with Ukraine, I thought was very good, very powerful. Um, again, not Churchillian, but uh, effective. Um, very, very well done. 
Um, there were other parts that were terrific. I loved how he um, gave a shout out to my friend Steve Breyer, Justice Stephen Breyer, who I've known for 60 more, 60 years, and we taught together, we clerked for the same justice. Uh, I wrote him a note uh, last night reminding him how long it's been since he came to our home, my wife and my home in Cambridge, the night he was nominated to the Supreme Court to drink a toast. Um, I had played a small role in that nomination. I had urged, uh, along with others, uh, President Clinton to appoint Steve to the Supreme Court, and he showed his appreciation by coming to our home and, and having a drink with us as he was about to ascend to that high position. And I, I thought Steve handled himself very well. He was very humble, and um, he did the right thing. He, he retired uh, at about the time he should. Uh, Steve and I are exactly the same age. He's a month older. That means he's 83 and a half years old. It's a good time to retire. Um, and I, I'm sure uh, a factor that played into his consideration was the fact the Senate conceivably could be taken over by Republicans in, in the next election, and certainly the presidency could be taken over by Republicans um, in, in, in two and a half years. So um, he did do what Ruth Bader Ginsburg didn't do, and that is he, he, he resigned, uh, retired in time for a Democratic president to nominate to the Democratic Senate uh, somebody who I believe is a very good candidate. I think that Judge Jackson uh, uh, checks all the boxes. Um, as I've said before, she adds diversity to the Supreme Court, by which I mean she was a public defender. She brings an experience to the court which they don't have today. There are no public defenders. In modern history of the Supreme Court, there's never been a public defender, and she's a public defender. Um, and that brings uh, the kind of diversity that we have to have, along with all the other kinds of diversity. I think we need much more diversity than we have in the Supreme Court now in terms of elitism. Um, uh, all the justices but one went to Harvard and Yale Law School, uh, and the only one that didn't, uh, Justice Barrett, went to the equivalent uh, of Ivy League Law School. Notre Dame is every bit as good as Harvard or Yale. And so, you know, we don't have anybody from Brooklyn Law School. We don't have anybody from uh, smaller law schools, regional law schools, southern law schools, uh, southwest law schools. I think a little bit of diversity there. And we also, everybody who's appointed is a former judge. Uh, the great justices in history have not been former judges. The great justices, some of them at least, um, Justice Brandeis came from practice. Justice Frankfurter came from practice. Earl Warren was the, the governor of uh, California. Uh, some great judges, obviously, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Benjamin Cardoza, came from previous judgeships, state judgeships, interestingly enough, whereas everybody on the court now is a former United States Court of Appeals judge. So I think we could have a little bit more diversity there as well. But I commend the president for his statements about the Supreme Court. I think he, he did a good job. Where, if I were a speechwriter, I would have played down issues like gun control, where Americans are just deeply, deeply divided, a woman's right to choose, where Americans are deeply divided, and where the Supreme Court will eventually have a lot to say about that issue. And, um, and, and I guess he had to speak about vaccines and the virus, and he didn't get into the hot-button issue of whether you can ever compel somebody to take a vaccine against their, their will. I've written a whole book 
on that on that subject. Um, but he said he wants everybody to get vaccinated, and he's going to make it easy to get vaccinated and easy to get tested. Talked about how many uh, vaccines have been exported to other countries in the world, and 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 he hopes that America gets herd immunity uh, through a combination of vaccination and people who have suffered from the disease. And you know. Nobody should get the disease if they can avoid it because long, long COVID. We don't know yet what the implications are for, for long COVID. We don't know what the implications uh, are if we get uh, variations, which inevitably we will get. But again, I thought he did a, a, a pretty good job on that. So, you know, I graded students for 50 years. I think I give them an A minus. Um, is there a little grade inflation? Maybe I'm used to great inflation uh, these days. Again, you know, not Churchillian, uh, not Reagan-like, uh, but good, workmanlike, uh, appropriate for the times. Look, if you have to ask me why I voted for Biden and why I like him, I think he's a man of our times. I think he is somebody who came after a president who was very divisive, and he promised, Biden did, normalcy, unity, bringing us together, emphasizing what brings us together and de-emphasizing what separates this us, no name-calling, no insulting. Uh, he is the non-Trump or the anti-Trump. And I think that's what many Americans uh, uh, wanted. I think um, both the past two elections, I don't think people voted for candidates as much as they voted against them. Uh, I think in the Trump uh, um, Hillary Clinton election, I wrote a book about it called Electile Dysfunction, in which I argued that the vast majority of votes for Clinton were anti-Trump votes and the vast majority of votes for Trump were anti-Clinton votes. And I think there was some of the same. Uh, not as much, because I think people don't love Joe Biden, but they like him. You know, and I think they're happy with him as president. Uh, the economy isn't doing great. The environment isn't doing great. Uh, this has not been the most successful first year of a presidency, but he's been up against some horrible, horrible uh, challenges. Nobody could have anticipated Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, except China. Apparently, according to a news report that I just read 15 minutes ago, China asked Russia to postpone their invasion of Ukraine until after the Beijing Olympics were over, so as not to interfere with the games. I don't know whether it's true. It comes from a credible uh, source. Uh, but if so, obviously, uh, China was in on the decision uh, to invade and, and was looking out for its own uh, interests in, in being the host of the uh, Olympics. So um, I think the speech, I think the speech was, was good, and I think it will uh, help calm and soothe our nation. Um, he, President Biden has continued today. He <clears throat> condemned Russia uh, over and over again for, he didn't use the word war crimes. He stayed away from the WC word, very, very serious word, uh, words, war crimes. But he did accuse them of using banned weapons and uh, etc. And I think they are committing war crimes. Um, I, I do think that uh, when you target civilians deliberately, I'm not talking about collateral damage, when you're attacking a legitimate military target, and incidentally, there are going to be some civilian casualties. The law of war permits that. It's 
called the rules of proportionality, but it doesn't permit the targeting of hospitals, schools, uh, um, monuments like the Bobby R. Monument. Um, um, and it's questionable whether it permits uh, the targeting, for example, of television stations, which people who do it say, well, they're part of the war effort, and people who don't do it say they're you know, part of the civilian structure. The laws of war are not <clears throat> as clear as they could possibly be. Well, today the United Nations General Assembly, the do-nothing assembly, that, <clears throat> as far as I'm concerned, hasn't done anything good since it um, uh, divided what used to be called Palestine into a, a Jewish state and a, an Arab state in, in 1947. That was the General Assembly recommendation accepted by uh, the Jewish inhabitants and rejected by the Muslim and Arab inhabitants. And that was a great, great thing to do back in 1947, but it's now been, uh, you know, three quarters of a century, and I don't think they've done very much uh, since. The General Assembly has been just a, a talk place, a talking place. I've been there many, many, many times um, and um, heard many, many good speeches, and some not so good speeches, but I haven't seen very much action. But the, um, the General Assembly today, after the Russians vetoed a Security Council, resolution that had a lot of votes, um, but the General Assembly today overwhelmingly passed a very strong uh, condemnation of, of Russia. I think the most interesting thing is who didn't vote for it. Um, so um, there were uh, four countries that voted with Russia against the resolution. No surprise here. Belarus. Belarus isn't, a, isn't talking about Ukraine. Belarus is a wholly owned subsidiary of, uh, of Putin's Russia, um, and um, they'll vote with Russia all the time. North Korea, North Korea, you know, it's again, it's a, a, a nuclear armed country that can't even feed its own, its own people. Syria, strong ally of Russia, voted against the condemnation, saying it would be hypocritical to condemn Russia without condemning Israel for its alleged occupation, without mentioning that Israel's offered to give up the occupation over and over and over and over again. It ended its occupation of the Gaza Strip in 2005. It offered to end the occupation of the West Bank and have a two-state solution in 2000, 2001, 2008, uh, and more recently, to sit down and negotiate a two-state solution. There's no comparison between um, what Israel did in a defensive war after it was repeatedly uh, attacked with rockets and threatened with annihilation and Russia's unilateral decision to move in on Ukraine where there is no provocation at all. A single, not a single rocket, not a single bullet was fired at Russia. So, you know, Syria is... is, is, is stating a, a foolish rationale. We know why it voted with Russia, because Russia is helping it now in its fight against uh, Israel. It's uh, arming it, it's providing it with um, sanctuary for its, its, its soldiers. And then, of course, the great country of Eritrea. Eritrea voted with, with Russia as well. The abstaining nations are interesting, too. Of course, some you would anticipate, uh, Cuba, uh, China, Iran, and, and, and basically a vote to abstain on a vote like this is a vote in favor of, of, of Russia. There were some surprising votes, though. India abstained. India did not condemn Russia. India abstained. And India is a democracy. In fact, India may be the only 
as I think about it, I haven't done the ca calculations, but I think India is probably the only democracy that didn't vote to condemn uh, Russia. Um, South Africa also abstained. Is South Africa a democracy? Well, it's a challenged democracy, but maybe you can count it as, as a democracy. Certainly a heck of a lot more of a democracy than it was under apartheid, but um, it, it, um, it, uh, there are some real questions. Uh, and, and, and Nicaragua, uh, of course, Nicaragua is going to generally go with Russia uh, under its um, very, very hard left uh, regime, even though Russia obviously today is not hard left. Um, Israel not only voted for the UN resolution, it was one of the sponsors of the UN resolution, and that took guts. That took courage on the part of Israel because Israel needs the cooperation of Russia in Syria. It needs the cooperation of Russia in its negotiations with uh, the, the, the Palestinians, and um, there was some division within um, the uh, elected officials in Israel, but ultimately Israel decided it had to do the right thing, and it did the right thing, and it joined in the resolution and voted for the the condemnation. So, as I've said yesterday, the world is a different place today than it was a week ago. Um, probably, other than the Cuban Missile Crisis, which did resolve in a peaceful and productive way, this is probably the most significant world-changing potential event in most of our lifetimes. I lived through the Second World War, so I'm not counted, but any of you who were born after 1945, which is the vast majority of you out there, um, this may be one of the, certainly one of the handful most significant events, because as I said yesterday, it's the first time that a major nuclear power has used the threat of nuclear weapons to invade and try to occupy a completely peaceful democratic state and the world can't do anything about it because it's nuclear armed and it's uh, a foretaste of what would happen if Iran ever developed nuclear uh, weapons. So I think this is an object lesson. Look, North Korea should never have been allowed to develop nuclear weapons. We messed up. We allowed it to happen. We should have used military force to prevent that from happening. India, Pakistan, you know, that was a very special situation. Um, Israel developed nuclear weapons on its own. Uh, it, it had the technology and the ability to uh, do it. Um, you know, my, my great story with Bibi Netanyahu, I'll repeat it here because it's, it's relevant. So when Bibi got elected prime minister, I've known Bibi since he's a, a kid, since he was in his early 20s. He, was, he and I were both on a TV show together called The Advocates, I think in 1970. So he was very young. I was 30, 31, and he was probably, I don't know, 23, 22. He was a student uh, up at MIT. And uh, we, his name then was Ben Natai. He had changed it for purposes of studying in the business school. He went back to Netanyahu afterward. But we became good friends back in 1970, and um, we've remained good friends. And every time I go to Israel, my wife and I have dinner with uh, Bibi and Sarah Netanyahu. Um, I, I'm not a supporter of Likud, um, generally, but Bibi is my friend. So when he got elected prime minister, um, he uh, invited my wife, myself, and my daughter to his office uh, to schmooze and to take some pictures. So we took pictures with the new prime minister. 
And then he called me on the side and he said, Alan, I need to take you into the very private room, most secure room. Nobody can listen. I have to ask you a very delicate question. I thought he was going to ask me about Iran, about the peace process with the Palestinians. Remember, this is 1996 or something like that. And he comes over and he whispers in my ear and he says, so Alan, did OJ do it? And I said, Mr. Prime Minister, does Israel have nuclear weapons? And he said, Alan, you know I can't tell you that. And I said, Mr. Prime Minister, you know I can't tell you that. Uh, you have your obligations of confidentiality as a prime minister. I have my obligations of confidentiality as a defense lawyer. And we both laughed and we both told that story uh, over and over again. Um, but I can reveal a big, deep, dark secret here. You heard it here from me. Israel has nuclear weapons. I hope they never have to use them. But they have nuclear weapons, and they are prepared to use them to deter uh, a nuclear-armed Iran from destroying the country because, as I've said before, the leaders of Iran have always said Israel is a one-bomb country. One nuclear bomb would destroy the country forever, and they would be willing to take the sacrifice that that entailed to destroy what they call the little Satan. And, of course, who's next? The big Satan. Who's the big Satan? The United States of America. So that's my take on the State of the Union uh, uh, message. Uh, oh, my son came up with a terrific idea, and I wanted to just uh, put it out there before I take a, a look at a couple of questions. Who has profited most from, from this war? I don't mean to be cynical, but who has profited most? Certainly the Russians. They've, they have lost a lot of money. The oligarchs have lost a lot of money. The big winners are CNN and Fox and uh, other media. Everybody is watching them. I don't like CNN. I'm suing them. But I keep flipping between CNN and, and Fox, and, and mostly what I see are commercials. So CNN and Fox and all the other media ought to be making significant, significant contributions to the victims in, in Ukraine. Uh, they ought to be sending lots and lots of money, helping to share the profits that are being generated by this horrible war. They are making fortunes of money on advertising as the result of people watching from morning to night. And I think it would be only right if they shared some of the profits they're making instead of war profiteering with the victims. So you heard it from me, uh, CNN, Fox, all the other networks that have increased their ad revenues and increased their viewership um, during this war, send some money to the poor people of Ukraine. Help them get medical assistance. Help them leave Ukraine and go to Poland. Help them be able to live in decent locations in Poland and Romania and other places where they have to go to. You know, a little bit of decency uh, and profit sharing from the media would be, I think, a good thing. So, let me look at some of the questions. Remarkably, yesterday's show, which uh, spent a lot of time on um, the issue of uh, Zelensky and the um, uh, Barbie Yar and, um, and um, the, 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 the complexities of history, got a lot of uh, positives, a lot of people really wanted to hear about the complexities. Thank you for your history lesson. Learn some things I did not know. You also expressed the murky thing called history. 
I knew about the Cossacks and the role Ukraine played in World War II. You also showed the difficulty of identifying the right or wrong in war. I also admire the president of Ukraine and the people fighting. So a lot of that kind of thing. Um, and um, people caring about my health. Uh, here's one. What happened to the Israeli camera that you had to swallow? I had to swallow a camera. A uh, camera had to stay in my body. Take 50,000 pictures. Fortunately, they all came out great. And uh, uh, two things became evident uh, from, from this camera. Number one, I no longer have any gall. Alan Dershowitz without gall. My gallbladder is gone. They tried to remove my chutzpah, but they couldn't find the organ. So my chutzpah is still there. I think a little of my bile may still be there, uh, but, but, but no more gall. And um, so the, the pill worked, and it's, it's amazing. Uh, the, the medical technology is just amazing. Okay, one question somebody asked me. De Gaulle was a mixed bag. Please explain your view. De Gaulle was a mixed bag. Uh, he, he was not a hero. In the Second World War, he ran away to England and um, uh, didn't put himself in harm's way, particularly. He's a big talker. He was an autocrat. Uh, he was as close to... Um, uh, an autocrat as any democracy uh, ever gets. Um, he was virulently anti-Israel, uh, uh, particularly after the 67 war, and uh, just not a, not a good guy. I mean, you know, people sometimes put him up there with Churchill. Churchill, his city was being attacked, his city was being bombed, he was there! Where was de Gaulle? De Gaulle wasn't in France for the vast majority of the time that France was under occupation. So I stick with my mixed bag. Um, let's see, we've got a couple of more good questions. Um, okay, <laughs> this one's gonna be controversial. Um, the Russians beat the Nazis. We only won World War II with their help. All right, I'm gonna make a statement now which is really gonna provoke anger, but I believe it to the depths of my being. The Germans won World War II. The Germans won World War II. Let me explain why. Adolf Hitler said, if you kill all the Jews, we will be a richer and more powerful country. And they killed all the Jews, and they became a richer and more powerful country. Germany simply didn't pay a sufficient price for what they did to six million Jews and many, many, many millions of others. And it was largely the fault of the Marshall Plan. Now, the Marshall Plan helped fight communism. I know, I know. You want to look forward, you want to look forward. But the vast majority of Nazis, the people at Bobby R, who put the guns to the heads of little babies, the people who led the children into concentration camps and into gas chambers, lived good lives in Germany. They died at age 90 with their grandchildren on their knees without paying any price at all. The vast, vast, vast majority of German villains got away with mass, mass murder. And who is the most admired country in the world now? Germany and Japan. So at least in one sense, in one sense, Germany won the war. They accomplished Hitler's goal, posthumously to be sure. But Hitler said, kill the Jews who will be richer and more powerful, and they killed the Jews and they were richer and more powerful. Look, the world always has to balance. 
The reason we created the Marshall Plan was because we were in a contest with the Soviet Union, and we wanted to enrich West Germany so that people would see that under capitalism, it's much better than under the communism in East Germany. That was a good thing. That was desirable. But it didn't pay the debt it owed to history, to the past. It only looked to the future. There were people who took a different view. Uh, Morgenthau, the former Secretary of the Treasury, he said at the end of the Second World War that Germany, for the next 50 years, ought to be relegated to being an agrarian country. All the museums should close, all the concert halls should close, people should have to live and eat uh, on their own food, in farms, no industry. The German people, the vast majority of whom supported Nazism, and a very large number of whom knew about what was going on, should suffer for 50 years. That was his point. He was exactly the opposite from the Marshall Plan. But Marshall prevailed. And um, Germany quickly became the most wealthy and most powerful country in, 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 uh, in Europe. And, and it's been good. They've been a good country. They have been a good ally of the United States. I, I'm not saying the Marshall Plan was wrong. I'm saying it failed to balance the need to punish the worst crimes in the history of the world with the need to move forward. It produced a good Germany. It's it, uh, a Germany that has rising anti-Semitism, to be sure, rising neo-Nazism, to be sure. A lot of countries in Europe have that. But for the most part, Germany is a good country, and the Marshall Plan made it a good country. But at a very, very mor high moral cost. A high moral cost of letting major, major Nazis. And I met some of them. I went to Europe. I went to Germany. I was on a Ford Foundation study trip for about mental health care, and I met some of the uh, doctors who had worked under Nazism, and they were living the life of Riley. They were so happy. None, nobody was punished. Their children were thriving. They were thriving. All I'm saying is that the Marshall Plan did a lot of good. It helped us defeat the Soviet Union. It helped us bring down the wall that separated East from West. The reason that the wall came down is that the people on the East wanted to be like the people on the West. They wanted to be wealthy and successful. It was successful that way, but at an extraordinarily high moral cost. And I think it had an effect. You know, in 1945, we said never again. What happened since 1945? Again and again and again and again. Pol Pot murdered uh, hundreds of thousands of innocent uh, uh, people. Mao Zedong, again and again and again. Stalin murdered people between 45 and his untimely death in 53. If he had only died 10 years earlier, the world would have been a better a place. So I think the message of the Marshall Plan, uh, which wasn't coupled with any real attack on, I mean, you know, a few hundred Nazi war criminals were were prosecuted, a, a few handfuls were executed, and the vast majority of them were let out very quickly thereafter and were very successful industrialists. And the, the companies like Bayer Aspirin, we all have eat Bayer Aspirin. Bayer was a major war criminal uh, during uh, the, the Second uh, World War, and so many other major war criminals simply weren't punished. So um, 
This is my view, and it's been very criticized. When I try to state it in academic settings, I have been really, really knocked by the pragmatists who say you have to look forward, you have to look to see uh, that the world will become a better place with the Marshall Plan and with a Germany that was uh, rich and wealthy. But the cost, to my mind, was very high. And the consequences to those who hands-on murdered people were not great enough. I'm interested in your views on this. It's a very controversial view. I stand pretty much alone in this view, me and, and Morgenthau. But, uh, and I wouldn't have gone as far as he went, but I would have gone a lot, a lot further than the Marshall Plan did. So uh, send me your comments on Rumble, listen to me on Locals, and um, I'll see you next week.